This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery. Hello, this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. I'm Stuart Craner. Today I'm speaking with Howard Yu from IMD Business School and author of Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied. Welcome, Howard. Thank you very much. Okay. Tell me about the genesis of the book. Well, you know, whenever I start talking to executive, either in program or in social setting, one of the big complaints they always have is saying, my product is getting commoditized. Meaning their sales force find it harder and harder to differentiate their offering in the marketplace. They kind of get all kinds of pricing pressure. There's always low cost competition coming in. And whenever they introduce some type of in, uh, innovation, product features, services, almost overnight, they get copied. And it's because of this complaint, give me the thrust to inquire, is that a new phenomena? Are there ways of getting out from this commoditized trap? What can executive do about it? But of course, products and indeed services, I suppose, have been copied for thousands of years. It's a fact of commercial life. It just happens quicker these days. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I found out. Um, so I live in Switzerland these days, and on the east side of Switzerland, there's a city called Basel. And there are all these pharmaceutical companies around. They have been around for almost 200 years or so. Back then, they were all copycat of the German invention because there's no patent law. That's how they get started. So I get in interested to understand how do these pharmaceutical companies settled down in the River Rhine for 250 years, continue to stay on top of competition versus from car like Detroit to uh, wind turbine manufacturer to solar panel to PC and mobile phone. Pretty much they are all taken over by latecomer. So initially I have this curiosity just to understand how do some company, despite global competition, they can stay continue on top of competition, despite all the copycats intruding the environment. But of course, copying can give you the advantage. I mean, there's a book by Costas Marquides and Paul Jarosky called Fast Second, mm -hmm. which says that argues that Charles Schwab was second to the market. Amazon wasn't the first online retailer. Actually, copying is it's quite a sound strategy, isn't it? That's right. This is why we saw most of the company or most of the sector. In fact, there's almost this latecomer advantage. Yeah. What I discover is, in fact, the so-called first mover advantage wasn't so much about you were the first in the market, but you are the first one who leap from one knowledge discipline to the next in order to reinvent yourself. Let me go back to the pharmaceutical industry to give you a quick example. It turns out most of these pharmaceutical firms 200 years ago, they were all organic chemists. They make chemical dye for textile industry. And these chemists discover some of the medicinal benefit of their compound. So the hotbed for pharmaceutical industry, for innovation, has historically been organic chemistry. Now you might remember around the sec after the Second World War, it's all about antibiotics, the penicillin. It's the study of microbiology. It's the finding out the next more potent, uh, they call the modules, to kill off bacteria. All of a sudden, the entire pharmaceutical industry leaped from the organic chemistry as a knowledge discipline to the study of microbiology. Now, of course, these days it's all genomics, computational science, 
and so forth. So what we've seen in the pharmaceutical industry is the leap from one knowledge discipline to the next and then to the next. Is somehow those pioneering company, if they were able to leap from one knowledge to the next, then they stand a better chance to stay on top of competition. If you compare and contrast automotive until most recently, it's always been mechanical industry. So what do companies need to do to be prepared to leap? There are a couple of things executives can really do. One is to have a very frank and understanding of the maturity of your organizational knowledge. Um, if you're in a very nascent field, that's fine. You can continue to focus on what you're doing well. But if you begin to see there are emerging competition coming out, pricing pressure, and more importantly, the knowledge discipline that build up your organization has been around for decades, things have been written down, then we probably need to begin to find out what are the next playing field that you could leap forward. Now, the second principle is really understand what are the major seismic shifts around your own industry. Because making a leap is a huge commitment, but then it's not entirely unpredictable. There are telltale signs that tell us in your field what are the major shifts around the industry we could leverage upon. For example, connectivity. For example, smart machine, artificial intelligence, or the rising importance of managerial creativity. So these are the different type of seismic shift that are changing around us. And the job of the key executive is how can I leverage this seismic shift so that to my organization can leverage a new knowledge discipline to reinvent yourself. But historically, and what kind of human nature, people's capacity and appetite for such such leaps is limited. So you're asking organizations to fight against human nature. Well, the good news is, yes, by and large, it's difficult. And um, what we've seen is company can actually play, play it in their own hand in changing the rules of the game, even when the product is rather mundane. Let me give you another example. Because pharmaceutical company could be high-tech and science-driven, but we could looking at, you know, company making laundry detergent or disposable diaper, Procter & Gamble, right? They have a history of 150 years. By conventional wisdom, a personal computing mobile phone get displaced by latecomer, Procter & Gamble should not have exist today. So I got curious again and plow back to historical data of this company. Turns out, back in you know the turn of the century, they were only making bigger and bigger factory, leveraging on one know-how, mechanical engineering. You put in conveyor belt and so on. Then begins they master this notion of consumer psychology. In fact, they were the first one who put on radio show. This is why we call it the soap opera that entertained uh, viewers, right? And so they could have outsourced all that, but they choose to insource that know-how rather than outsource to advertising agency. It's almost the similar discussion these days. Executive would debate: Should we outsource data analytics or should we build an in-house team? Now, by around the sixties. The PNG scientists discovered that they could, in fact, invent the first synthetic detergent. That's the Thai brand. And in the wake of the launch of the Thai, the technical staff, rooted in organic chemistry, tripled overnight. So for PNG historically to compete against copycat is not just around 
cutting price and so on, but it's the totality of free knowledge disciplines, mechanical engineering, consumer psychology, and finally organic chemistry. So it's this idea that no matter what kind of sector you're in, you can leap to a new knowledge discipline and stay on top, away from copycats. How does this relate to um, Ikijiro Nanaka's work on the knowledge-creating company? Because what you're arguing is that it's the, it's the reservoir of knowledge within a company. It's their appetite to change that mm -hmm. is the crucial factor. That's right. And it's a lot to do with creating and also assimilating external knowledge as well at its heart. Because for, again, if you're thinking about these days we talk about data analytics. One could buy third-party standard package. You could outsource to external consultant, or you could build a small team in-house and integrate that knowledge and change the business model. I remember I went to Israel to visit um, a museum, the Tower of David, right? 3,000 years of history. Today, they actually have a data scientist team not so much around doing data analytics, but they said, they explained to me, they need someone who are software programmers so that they can work with Intel and other technology provider to leverage on the next frontier, augmented reality, so that when visitors coming in to experience their museum, it would have a complete new way of storytelling. They find themselves getting trapped. They couldn't just outsource those capability because no one have the prerequisite of understanding how a museum should be run. So here's the idea. In order to stay on top, you need to integrate that new knowledge inside your own organization. And if you were to do this, it's almost like climbing mountain. If you think about competition, it's always climbing up to the mountain peak. When knowledge stays stagnate, sooner or later, the latecomer would reach the same height as the pioneer. But if you were to leap from one knowledge discipline to the next, it's almost like having mudslide that push everyone down from the mountaintop. In that game, it turns out it's the most experienced one with stand a better chance to stay. You have some great stories in the book. Uh, I like the historical ones. And uh, how did you come across them? How did you actually carry out the research? <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little bit of a history uh, fan in many ways. And in my dissertation, um, I use historical analysis um, as a method to, to, to really examine um, the strategy process of big organization. Um, so back then, when I was still uh, at Harvard Business School for my doctoral training, I went out to Taiwan to compare and contrast why do some companies were able to change their business model versus someone, some others couldn't. At the time, all the Taiwanese companies are primarily contract manufacturer. They all want to develop their global brand. Now that's before China becomes so big. Companies such as Acer and AsusTech were able to change so. Companies such as Quanta Computer and Compound, nobody knows, they get stuck as contract manufacturer. But if you're looking at their annual report, everyone's had the same strategy. In fact, you swap the annual report, you couldn't tell who's who. However, when, we, when I zoom in to looking at the history, how it unfolds, it turns out the strategy process actually dictates much more of what the strategy is about. We can always talk about strategy for all day long, but there are certain processes, unless senior management team doesn't really manage, then the default is the organizational inertia 
would be way too big. So on the third part of my book, I also looking at what are the managerial behavior require so that an organization can actually leap from one knowledge to the next. It turns out it's much more complex than I thought. The, the different cultural attitudes. I mean, if you were in a stereotype, you would say that um, large American tech companies might not be open to um, yeah. em embracing a, a new right. knowledge infrastructure for themselves. Right. right. So, 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 if you're thinking about you know agility and reinvention, of course, these days everyone are very worried about the Chinese. Maybe Silicon Valley would be on the high end in terms of fast work. And you know, we would have a stereotype. Perhaps the Japanese would be very slow. So I had the privilege to looking at one Japanese company, completely changed the way they do, and and they started off as a almost yellow page. They were a traditional advertiser publisher. They should have died. Today they were basically an internet service. Provider providing services to mom and pop store. If you have a small time restaurant, uh, you have a lot of back end processes that you want to offload. Think about Salesforce.com, but for mom and pop store. So the company is called Recruit Holdings. Sixty years ago, they were only doing classified posts, and then slowly, slowly, they begin to put on a lot of advertisement on digital on the web. But then they begins to realize, wait, there are so much pain point around the customer journey that we could do it much better. So they provide such as you know point of sales uh, machine. They take off the back end uh, booking system for beauty salon and so on. And then today they realize they have so much data that they eventually build up an AI lab outside in Silicon Valley. And as I was looking at the journey. From where they were 60 years ago to where they are today, it's not so much of an overnight revolution, but essentially an evolution of the service that they provide. And most interestingly is today everyone knows artificial intelligence would be a big growth engine. What Recruit have showed us there is a tremendous amount of uh, potential for human work to continue to play a critical role. Like sales, historically, salespeople are very routine work. They go after town just to sell advertising space. Today, they become problem solvers. They essentially go visit customer, observe what are the customer pain point, and bringing also software managers to to be together to prototype. So, if I'm looking at the job nature, it becomes much more general. That also an indication about the nature of future work too.、Mm -hmm. And where does the research go now? Well, the research I'm thinking about right now is, his. In the past, I've been looking at what are some of the company were successfully leap going forward, and and after extracting that lesson learned, we can apply to to today as well as for the future. What I want to do next is to really come up with a sort of a leap readiness index, if you will, to really looking and measure. How ready a company or enterprise is able to move from one knowledge discipline to the next, and there are many proxy one can think about. For example, the diversity of the board members, the tenure of the CEO, 
the research R&D spend expenditure, how many business lines that they have, do they have a co-working space, how much strategic alliances that they forge, so on and so forth. And if we were to collect all these proxies, although we could never tell for sure, but at least we could have a ranking proxy to looking at if one looking at one sector, which are the company who are most likely to leave as a result, could probably continue to prosper in the next 50 and 60 years or so. And what are those other companies, unfortunately, would have a much shorter time horizon and continue to stay where they are. It's a question of whether, whether they leave or whether they are pushed. Yes, that's right. You know, in the end, it does tie back to certain personal conviction. Because in Novartis, for example, the pharmaceutical company I mentioned earlier, towards the end, they were about to launch a drug that are based on uh, bioinformatics. It completely changed the knowledge discipline that they would. But it only helped to cure a rare form of cancer. So there were a lot of debate inside the company. If this is such a small disease class, we shouldn't invest. We should plow back the investment to larger disease class like breast cancer and prostate cancer. This is a rare form of leukemia. But the CEO at the time, Daniel Venzala, said, well, if this thing based on clinical trials is not just about incremental revenue, but fundamentally change how drug will be discovered going forward, money doesn't matter. Full steam ahead. It's very similar to the example of Procter & Gamble as well. Uh, the CEO, when reviewing, uh, you know, should we launch Thai, this first synthetic detergent or not, there's a compulsive fear inside the company that they worry it would destroy the natural soap business, ivory. Again, the chairman said, if anybody's going to destroy our natural soap business, it better be P&G. So the cliche that Steve Jobs said, you know, if we don't sell cannibalize, someone else would, in fact, has been repeated throughout long history. It does require certain commitment, point of view, and long-term horizon uh, against short-term goal. How would you? Thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And this was recorded in the very noisy Fox Club in the heart of London. Thank you. This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy design and delivery.